Hi everyone, and welcome to 42 to Doomsday, Australia's last remaining Doctor Who podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Rob. And tonight, it's part two of our merchandising special, where we look at Doctor Who merchandising from a dealer's perspective. So Mark and I ventured into the deepest, darkest inner city Melbourne to speak with Aaron Challenger, co-owner of Lobos Collectibles, for his insight into the retailing side of uh, Doctor Who merchandising. Uh, we had a really good chat with Aaron, and uh, just after this, you'll be able to hear it. So take it away, Aaron. So tonight, Mark and I are in inner city Melbourne, where uh, we're currently sitting in Lobos Collectibles with the owner, Aaron Challenger. Aaron has kindly given up some of his time tonight to uh, speak with us about merchandise, particularly Doctor Who merchandise, but I think we're going to be venturing into other genre-related merchandise. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, um, Aaron, just uh, just to give us uh, and our listeners a bit of background about yourself, um, can you tell us about uh, when you became sort of interested in, say, in Doctor Who uh, and other genre media? Well, I guess I would be one of those poor tragics that was born into the uh, into the world of Doctor Who and science fiction. Um, my parents sort of always encouraged it, and I always loved uh, the toys and collectibles associated with it. When did your interest in, uh, in the toys sort of move on into selling the toys? Well, growing up being a Doctor Who fan, there weren't a lot of Doctor Who toys. Um, I remember the mainstays of collecting were the Target books every month as they came out, and Doctor Who magazine. I remember it would have been about 1985 that Doctor Who magazine did a merchandise special, which I think they were criticised as as selling a um, junk mail <laughs> to fans. But I saw for the first time things like the amazing Denny Fisher dolls and some of the 60s Dalek merchandise. And being in Australia, you just never saw any of that stuff at all. And before the internet, there was no way to source it. So I started doing secondhand shops, trash and treasure markets, collectible stores, and still finding very little. And I remember one of the big stores in Melbourne was called Movieola, and they dealt primarily in posters and um, movie memorabilia, but they had the incredibly rare and never seen in Australia, Pally Toy Talking Dalek. And this would have been in about 1986, and it was about $300. Um, I would have been on four dollars fifty a week no a month pocket money and i traded that pocket money for the target novel and the doctor who magazine because that was about eight dollars in value (laughs) and i would go into the shop every week and see it and i would never be able to ever think i could afford it but you would see all the other toys that were in there and there was a fantastic robbie the robot from forbidden planet one day i was at an op shop in ringwood and the same robbie the robot that they had for twelve hundred dollars was sitting in the op shop for $10. And I picked up the Robbie the Robot and the next weekend I went into Moviola and I said, I've, I've got this Robbie the Robot, how much would you sell it for? Because you've got it for $1,200. And they said, well, you've got to remember, we make a markup and everything and we would probably buy it off you for about $300. I was like, that's fantastic. <laughs> but I just want to swap it for the Dalek. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, if you want to do that, that's absolutely fine. So I swapped it for the Dalek. And then, when I was going around looking for Doctor Who merchandise at different uh, second-hand places and markets, I started buying anything I think I could 
buy and sell to fund by Doctor Who collecting. In terms of the Doctor Who items you were finding in op shops and, and trash and treasures and the like, can you give us some other examples of what you were finding there? There wasn't a lot. It was mainly collecting the first editions of Target books, getting back issues of Doctor Who magazine. You would occasionally find something unusual like the um, items from the Doctor Who show bag, or, but very, very little. Not, not much in Australia. I don't think a lot was imported at the time. So I, I see that you're buying stuff just to fill you know, holes in your collection and also were you buying stuff to sell so you could fund purchases in your own collection? Yeah, I was the type of kid growing up who would ask for lunch orders so I could not eat lunch and keep the money and then go into Minotaur Books in the weekend and buy the latest DWM or something like that. So. Okay. So it was purely to fund my Doctor Who collecting. So when did you then make the transition, sort of? Because I know when I met you in the 90s um, and bought, uh, I think it was issues of DWB um, off you, you were, I think, at that stage, selling stuff on a more regular basis. Would that be correct? Mm, before the internet, the only way, really, you could sell stuff, and, and you've got to remember, that was I was still in high school when I first met you, so I didn't have um, a shop or anything. It was collectible fairs. And so they were on in Melbourne maybe every three or four months. And what I would do would be going around Campbell Market, Wonturner Trash and Treasure, secondhand bookshops and junk shops for the three months leading up to them and um, getting stock ready to sell at the fair. And then at the fair, going and getting all the money for what I'd found, going into Minotaur the next day and blowing it all on Doctor <laughs> Who. <laughs> Doctor Who stuff. And um, you reselling at, at various fairs, etc. Did you have sort of regular customers that you were building up? Were you building up a customer base? I did. I had quite a, a big customer base because I think I was one of the dealers that I wasn't so much dealing to make a lot of money. I was just dealing to make enough money to fund my own collecting. And I understood like why people were buying the stuff. So I was, I was very you know, looking for a specific thing for specific people and could source it. And, and was there ever a situation where you, you found something that, you know, you could, you thought, you envisaged that you could resell and you thought, hang on, no, I want to keep this for myself. Was there anything that you found that you kept for yourself or is it all on the table to be resold? Before I was married, I would, I would keep whatever I liked. So I would find other stuff, not just Doctor Who stuff and keep it. And there was a while there where there was some Star Trek stuff and a lot of Star Wars stuff and, and, and things like that. Um, now I, I find that I've had so much stuff pass through my hands, even if there's something in my own collection at home, if someone wants it, I'll sell it because I, I know I'll, I'll find it again eventually. Just to take, take a step back before we sort of move into the uh, internet age, um, you said before that there wasn't much in the way of Doctor Who merchandise here in Australia, obviously for a number of reasons, but in terms of other shows, Star Trek, Star Wars for instance, what was the market like at that stage? There still wasn't a lot of merchandise. I think it was more you would have the Hollywood blockbuster related stuff. So stuff that was mainstream so it would get a toy line or mainstream enough that it would have a, a, a regular comic book that would be in the newsagents rather than in the specialty shops. And I mean, I did get a lot of um, Doctor Who stuff back then. And compared to how the internet is now, I mean, it's incredible. The way you would get stuff back then is you would get one of the fanzines and you would see people advertised in Celestial Toy Room or mm. Doctor Who Bulletin and they would be advertising a set auction. So you would write off by Snail Mail and you would get a catalogue of their of their set items of what they had and it might be a, a page or it might be a, a little booklet of things and you would go through the whole booklet and circle all the things that you were interested in and then you would work out your budget and work out what your bid would be for those items and then you would write a letter back to that person 
and maybe three or four months later you'd get a letter back from them saying well my auctions are over and you were successful on these five items and you would have to go and get international reply coupons or um, an international bank draft and send that back to them and then hope that your items would turn up a month or two later so from when you first saw the ad to getting the items that you actually wanted it could be five to six months and now you look at ebay and people are unhappy if they don't get it in the week they, they bought, <laughs> they bought the auction. Yeah. Did you find that you were selling most of your stuff via the fairs, or were you selling stuff sort of by mail? Were people knew enough about you to order stuff over the mail? Well, interestingly, I never did mail order because it was just seemed like too much effort. But I met both of you through the Doctor Who Club, and I ran the merchandise department in the Doctor Who mm. Club for a couple of years, and that was one of the other big outlets I had in networked through Doctor Who fans and bought collections through the club and you know it, it's changed a bit now where I don't know how many people you know take their collections along to sell at meetings it's all online now but mm. it was a much more social way of collecting mm. back yeah. then and in that era what was give us a couple of examples of, of, of stuff that you found that you know really appealed to you or was particularly rare or collectible is there anything that you that comes to mind the best thing is when you found some 60s merchandise in Australia because it just just didn't come here and probably the best find I ever had was at a record fair where someone had one of the 60s Dalek jigsaws and it was back then you've got to remember they didn't even know how many of these jigsaws were in the set you know in Doctor Who magazine they'd say we found this Doctor Who stand-up jigsaw. There's rumours there was another one in the set. There was no Celestial Toy Room books and, uh, and guides like that. So it was finding a 60s item that I had never seen a picture of. You know, that, that was the, the type of Holy Grail thing. So the 60s annuals were, were released in Australia, but they're still pretty hard to find. Um, but any toys from that era were particularly appealing. been talking about uh, an era where there was no internet and I think into the early 90s you were still in high school so when when did you first come across the internet and realize there's potential here or is there a bit more of a story before that oh there probably is I stopped collecting not because I le lost the love of the show or the show went away it was because probably for three or four years straight there was only new merchandise that I could collect to expand my collection I couldn't find anything vintage in Australia at all and the whole sending away for stuff and taking six months to get it was it was a bit too too long for me to wait so other shows came out and other things replaced the collecting and it sort of it was always there but the classic stuff is what I love collecting so not being able to find it sort of takes away from the drive to to go out looking mm -hmm. so I remember for I think it was when I was in high school for about six years straight I used to get up at you know five in the morning and go to the markets and probably every week for four or five years I would find something for my collection if it wasn't Doctor Who it would be something but then for a while there was weeks and weeks and weeks where I'd only be buying stuff to resell and it kind of took the the drive away and then um, it wasn't so much the internet coming along it was eBay and I remember getting on eBay for the first time on on dial-up and like putting in Doctor Who Denny Fisher and I'd never seen, you know, some of the, the dolls in Australia. Leela was a, a hard one. I don't know how many people had it here. And watching the, the photo on the page slowly load on mm. dial-up until you, you saw the item. And the other thing that was appealing on auctions was you saw the prices and it was like £2. 
though you didn't realize that you know it's going to go up from that but you would see all this stuff you just did not see locally and it was suddenly available so that reignited my passion for collecting doctor who did you buy it big yes yeah <laughs> how did you display your collection i'm one of those collectors that had glass cabinets at home and bookshelves and bookshelves and took over spare rooms and took over my parents spare rooms and then eventually had a storage unit as it got bigger and bigger and bigger so that's where it went from being a manageable doctor who collection to maybe i'm looking at i've got enough to open a shop you know and is that when you made the jump um no well i i managed another shop in um in melbourne called antiquarian records because i'm i'm like music as well and when I was going around Camberwell Market, I was there every week for, for years and years, and one of the guys that dealt in records said he was opening a record shop. Did I want to um, come and manage that for him? And that was almost straight out, out of high school. So I was like, yeah, that sounds like a, a good thing to do for a couple of years before I get serious and do whatever <laughs> I intend to really do with life. And I slowly perverted his record shop into a collectible shop. <laughs> so uh, I managed it for nearly 10 years. And when we first started, it was all vinyl records and music memorabilia. And then when we eventually closed up, it was about half Star Wars and um, genre stuff. There wasn't, still wasn't much Doctor Who at the time. The series hadn't come back. Um, so it was mainly Star Wars and vintage toys from the 80s, He-Man and G.I. Joe and... All the things I grew up with. How are they selling? They they sell amazingly well. The the story that we I hear over and over again, probably every day, is I went back to my parents to pick up my toy collection that I had as a child to mm. give to my children, and they said they sold it at a garage sale ten years ago. I want to collect it back, and then they said spend the the customer will spend the rest of their lives collecting their childhood back again. Mm. Yeah, and I'm sure that's probably happened to a lot of people listening. And during that time that you spent uh, managing that store, what was what was the the, the setup like in, in in Melbourne in terms of sh stores selling collectible items like that? Was it was there a lot of competition, or was it a fairly a niche but well you know populated area? It, it was a, it was a niche market. There there was a couple of shops, and there was a couple of good ones, and um, they were probably the ones that dominated the market. Got to remember at the time before the internet, with unique items, it was worth whatever someone in the shop priced it at because the market the area of it where, where, where that was was as far as you could drive and if you couldn't find that item yourself in the area you could drive there was only the one or two shops that had it that you could buy it from um, so it there's friendly competition between collectible shops but usually every collectible shop usually depending on their owner has their own niche that they concentrate on so if I'm into Doctor Who, I load this shop with more Doctor Who than we probably should have. And there'll be other shops that do lots of wrestling memorabilia because the owners grew up with wrestling or Kiss. Kiss memorabilia is a, another big mm. one. So we're known sort of for more sci-fi because I'm into sci-fi. And lots of stores can coexist within each other because they've got different niches to cater for. Exactly. We even recommend each other sometimes. Well, there you go. <laughs> Friendly competition. We've, we've touched on the internet before. Um, what impact... Uh, did the internet have on you in terms of your collecting and on the market in terms of uh, you know bringing more people in I suppose well when I was at the record shop that's when the internet and eBay really started to become more used among collectors and what we found was because the market was now global internet items sold a lot higher than we would sell things for in the shop if you put them in auction and that was because 
everyone lists on eBay now, but back then I don't know if anyone remembers listing anything on eBay. You needed a degree in computers to put mm. a listing up. It wasn't just one page, click, 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 there's your photo. It was about six pages to go through and uploading stuff. And if you made a mistake and accidentally pushed, pushed the backspace back to the previous page, you lost all your work and you wanted to punch the computer screen. And so there was a lot more people buying on the internet than there were with the people with the ability to list and list good items on the internet. So we would be looking at the overheads of the shop and we decided we would start listing stuff on the internet once a week. And that did so amazingly well. We were looking at how things were going and the internet was really something with no overheads and it was keeping the shop open and pop property prices meant the rent was going up and up and up mm. and so eventually I was on the internet all the time listing stuff and the trouble was I didn't really like doing that because I liked interacting with the customers and dealing with collectibles and and things like that and I was on a wage and I said to myself well I could be at home and I could just be listing all my own items online and instead of taking a wage I would just be keeping everything I made so first I dropped how many days I was working in the shop and started working for myself and then when I worked out oh yeah this is gonna work I stopped working in the shop and was doing things online and I was online for about 10 years just solid listing on eBay and were you also buying things on eBay and then on selling them for a little bit extra? Or? I had a big enough hoard of stuff oh, that okay, I, yeah. I didn't ever... I'd, I'd, yeah. I would be buying more for myself off of eBay yeah. and then um, selling selling online things that I didn't really want to keep or were just stock for me to for me to list. You didn't see the occasional bargain? I thought I might grab that and then... I did, but um, at the time, the prices were high okay. online. Yeah. You could find bargains. I've, I found some bargains in my time on eBay, but... Mm. But it was harder back then when there was less listed. You said before that you, you were selling stuff that you didn't really need uh, on eBay. Were there any instances where you were sort of umming and ahhing whether to sell something? Or is it because you, you, you attached a personal value to it? Or you've not, you said, no, nah, I'm going to take a commercial, commercial look at this and I'm just going to sell? Well, it was I would keep all the Doctor Who stuff and sell everything else. So there wasn't really any conflict in what I was collecting and what I was... Um, selling so. and, and what sort of things were you selling I mean was it fairly diverse I mean you mentioned before it, Kiss and wrestling for other niches well I never sold wrestling I, I did sell Kiss stuff and because I dealt with records for years and years I was advertising locally to buy collections and mm. buying collections and splitting them up and selling them online and, and for a long time that did really well and during that period a lot of collectible shops closed down because I think all the people who run them had the had the same pressures of rent and the space and uh, saw what prices well the, the other thing we would get which I think led to a lot of collectible shops going down we would get customers come in and say you know that record we bought off you for $30 we just sold it for $200 on eBay uh, and when when you hear that once in a while you think oh good for them but when you're hearing it all the time every mm. day you're like well why don't I just do that and mm. so a lot of collectible shops um, closed down and I think that left a hole in the market and that sort of brings us up to now where after 10 years of dealing with people online, I never want to send another <laughs> another parcel out and never want to open an email saying, where's my item? I bought it yesterday. Yes. Um, so it's a much more relaxed and personable way of doing it, having a shop and having customers that come in that you know you love to talk to because you share the same interest mm -hmm. rather than sending items to Vatican City. <laughs> oh. Really? Yeah, really. I think... 
Vatican City and Siberia were the two weirdest. <laughs> what, what does the Pope like in terms of genre? That was Star Wars figures. <laughs> May the force be with him. <laughs> on to uh, the store this really impressively set up store it's, it's fantastic. amazing yeah it's a pity that there's only audio and no visual facts um when i've bought uh, bought and sold on ebay myself i buy, buy second-hand books occasionally and sell them for a, a vast markup i sometimes stand at the shop where i buy this you know the op shop and i go i'm paying like i did on the weekend six dollars for this book and i know i can sell it for 150 dollars when you were buying uh stuff to sell on ebay did you ever sort of sit there and go oh I feel a bit of a pang knowing that this person is missing out on X profit. Yeah, there's there's a couple of different stories I could tell you there. Um, One of the ones that almost upsets me is um, when the ABC sold their their vinyl library and they updated to digital and they asked our shop to come up, come out and uh, put, they asked a lot of shops to put tenders in, but we were the one that, that won it. So over about five or six years, we were going out and buying a category at a time so we'd buy all their soundtracks and then all their country and all their easy listening and and, and as they slowly got rid of all their their um their items and there was stuff in there that to some people would probably have been priceless there was one-off items and there was test pressings and there was really unusual stuff and it got to the point where we i, I we separated all the stuff that we thought that was really amazing and we had record crates full of it and i rang the national archive and i said oh look this is what's happening and we've we've got this and we've got that and at the time uh, the National Archive in Canberra were also looking at getting rid of all of their vinyl so they weren't really they they said some of it sounded interesting but they really weren't interested in it unless we wanted to send it up to them for free like not even paying for postage or or anything so there, there was really unique stuff that went on the internet I felt bad about that. So this was the national broadcaster deleting or giving away or throwing away potentially some of it was national heritage items. Yeah. And the National Archive, which is allegedly meant to look after stuff, not refusing to take it or being very problematic about taking it. I think the ABC and I think the National Archive had space issues and that they were not looking at vinyl as something they wanted. And, you know, with any collection, it's the same. Probably 90% of a collection is, is common stuff that, you know, we is not going to be worth anything or is what everyone has. And then, you know, usually there's 10% that's really the good sellable stuff. But this was, you know, 80% of that sort of stuff everybody has and 15% of the really good stuff and then 5% of, like, amazing heritage-type items. And the, the the contrast was we had customers in the shop at the time who were like, don't sell anything to anyone. We want to buy the whole collection. Name your price for this, name your price for that. But you know it's never going to be seen again. It's going to go into a private collection and that's it. It will be it will be loved but by one person. Mm. Whereas you, I would have liked for some of it to go to the National National Archive. The white label discs in particular, they would go for a lot, a lot of money on eBay. Well, there was white label stuff, I think, that had been recorded of live broadcasts of the ABC, of local mm. artists that just wouldn't have existed. There would have just been the one copy one they copy, had that they might have sent around in their transcription service. And because it was Australian, it would have been really unique. Then you get to the other end of um, the scale where probably about a year ago, I went to an op shop with my son 
and there was a huge Godzilla toy from the movie that everyone hates. Um, <laughs> not <laughs> the, the Amer- new one. Not the new one. <laughs> the, um, and it was like $8, and I knew it was a $200 toy. And I got it, and I took it up to the lady, and I gave her $20 for it, and said, oh, this is a great toy, I'll give you $20 for it. The lady said to my son, aren't you a lucky boy? And my, my son looked up at the lady and said, no, my dad owns a toy shop. He's going to sell it in his toy shop for a lot more than you just sold it to us for. And you just... <laughs> I just looked at her and smiled. <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> so so there's two stories from either end of the, exactly. of the spectrum. Just to diverge for a moment, Aaron. I mean, we've been talking about them for the last half hour, but in your mind uh, and in your experience, what makes an item collectible? I don't think there is any one thing you can define that makes an item collectible. I look at my collection, or my collecting, as it works on the bigger idiot principle. Where if I was stupid enough to buy something, there's going to be a bigger idiot that'll buy it off me later for more. You just want to make sure you're not the king of the idiots that sits there (laughs) with all the stuff that no one else wants. But um, a lot of people come into the shop, it's very trendy at the moment to collect, and they ask, what should I collect that will be an investment? And I totally, um, I advise against that. I think you should collect what you love and then it doesn't matter if the value goes up or down because you've got a collection that you personally enjoy and it shouldn't matter. So there's a lot of things that people look for when they're collecting. Is it unique or is it limited? Usually they limit things to how many they can sell. So (laughs) instantly, you know, limited editions are pre sort of predetermined collectibles and there's a market for them but i don't like that kind of stuff i like i guess rare because it's no one thought to keep it when it was originally around so Mm. things things that are disposable i think i think one of the rarest items of doctor who merchandise is the dalek sponge from the 60s that they've got pictures of but none survived the 60s so something like that would be rare Mm. um and i guess what makes something rare is is or collectible is more than one person wants it because you can collect barbed wire and people do collect barbed wire but it's not rare because you know Mm. not a lot of people would be after your collection but if you collect Doctor Who or Star Wars or He-Man there are rare items that you know people discuss and they covet and they save up for and and you can't find as um, as freely as some of the more common items. But there's some toy ranges that are saturating the market. You find me there's a wall of Star Wars toys, and a particular uh, Phantom Menace, which we all know is a pretty crap film. In terms of the value of those items, have they gone up since their initial release, do you think? With the Phantom Menace, I, I was selling the Phantom Menace stuff when it came out, and I think we sold more merchandise in the two weeks before the movie came out than the entire year after the movie was released. <laughs> and... I can just about get the recommended retail price of Phantom Menace stuff now. Uh, You know, that was out in 99, so it's taken that long for it to recover. But there are still rare items from the Phantom Menace because, you know, all the early stuff sold sold lots because people anticipated the movie. It was probably the biggest anticipated movie in history. Mm. Then when people saw it, they stopped collecting it. So the later items, they didn't produce as much of and no one bought. And so they are quite rare. And if anyone starts collecting The Phantom Menace, they are the ones that still are hard to find. With mass-produced stuff now on the internet, everything is available online. So something from the era of The Phantom Menace, there wouldn't be anything that you couldn't get um, online. But you do find 
kids that grew up from that uh, generation now do come into the shop and have started collecting Phantom Menace merchandise in the same way that I would collect vintage Star Wars figures, and they love Jar Jar. Well, it is. I mean, it is fifteen years ago, say for, for for the Phantom Menace, and they're at an age where they're sort of they have disposable income, and to them, the Phantom Menace means as much to them as say Star Wars would to a to particular us. generation yeah. of kids. So, I mean, you know, you can quibble about the quality of a of a particular movie, mm. but there's no denying that when people tie their 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 um, emotion emotional to it, yeah. emotions to to that. That they, they want to experience a part of it, and I suppose that's a, that's a part of what collecting is. Mm, I think it's I think it's a part of growing up. You can't look at something through a child's eyes again. So I think that happens with the new series of Doctor Who, where I enjoy it more through seeing how my son enjoys it rather than seeing some of the faults I might be seeing because I'm a critical adult that loves the old series. So yeah, exactly. that that goes across all the all the genres. <laughs> decided to open up a shop would that be right or well it's interesting what happened i was selling on ebay and not enjoying it as as much um i'd gone to a couple of fairs again and i found that going to fairs after such a long break the stuff that i had had for years and years was suddenly fresh again and there weren't a lot of people who had it at the fairs and i went to the doctor who meeting which i hadn't been to for about 10 years and literally sold everything i took which which stunned me just for a a normal Doctor Who club meeting, um, and at the same time, one of, one of my customers um, who had been buying stuff off of me regularly had opened a shop, and he was asking if he could buy my entire stock because he needed the stock for the shop. But if you're you're buying stock for a shop, you only want to buy it at a, a quarter of what you're going to sell it for, and because that's how I made a living, it wasn't really an attractive option for me. Um, and then about a year later, he expanded into this shop here, and he said, "Well." I know you don't want to sell your stock. Do you want to come in to the business with me and put your stock in and manage the manage the shop? And that was a really good way to get away from the internet and still do the thing I really enjoyed doing. And that was interacting with fans, basically, wasn't it? Yeah, back into fandom. And, 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 and it's more interesting now because there was a big enough break in fandom for me uh, when I was online to notice a huge difference into the in, in people who collect now, whereas... When I was in the record shop um, 10, 15 years ago, it was sort of, I guess, all male, um, you know, 20 to 40, very, it, it, it's really cliched, but it was that, that market. And now it's 50-50 girls, guys, lots of kids come in, um, parents come in and, and buy stuff where, you know, back in the days when you'd go into Minotaur and it was the only shop, you wouldn't have a lot of parents bringing their their kids in um, and it, it's interesting to see how collecting has crossed generations over, over Christmas this year our biggest selling toy was probably Doctor Who mm-hmm. and that was because they brought out the Doctor Dalek 2 packs oh, yeah. and it was kind of the perfect toy because it went everyone in the family has a favourite Doctor and the Dalek is the favourite um, villain so you would have kids coming in and saying my dad, I watched Doctor Who with my dad and he remembers the guy who wore the cricket gear and the kids would be buying a Doctor Who gift for their parents and then a couple of days later, unbeknownst, the parent would come in and say, do you have David Tennant with the Dalek? I, I think my son wants that for, for Christmas. So really just nice to see that it's so accepted and 
you know, there's um, that cross between obsessive collectors and just people who generally appreciate the show and love the show for what it is. Do you find people come in specifically for investment? Yep, there are a few people that come in specifically for investment. There's a whole side of things we haven't touched on, which is uh, grading and AFA grading. And there's some collectors that will only buy stuff that is AFA graded because it's been um, graded by someone independent and it's been sealed in a perspex cube and it will never change condition and the price generally holds on that and will only go up. So there are people, and there's a whole market for for that, not just with toys, but comics and trading cards where you can get your items graded and a graded item will go for, you know, 50% more than the, the regular item up to many times more if it's like a mint, mint item. Is there something that you deal in here? We don't get anything graded. We've bought graded collections and usually if a graded collection comes through, we can ring particular customers who we know collect that and they'll come in and, and buy it pretty fast, yeah. In your opinion, what is it purely for the investment that they're looking at there or is it for the fact that they can, they can say, I have this particular item and it is perfect and it will never change, whereas other examples of it will change? Is it- there aren't many collectors that would buy something purely for investment if they didn't actually like the items or didn't have an attachment to them when they were growing up. But there are some people that will only buy AFA graded stuff. Uh, and it's interesting because I can have a mint item that I can't see a defect on and they might be interested in that and they'll say, that's amazing, pity it's not AFA graded. So, And just for the listeners, what is AFA, AFA grading? It's an independent, uh, the AFA action figure authority which is a company in america you can send your action figures to and they will look at it and they have a a set of specifics that they have to match and it will be uh, there'll be three grades on an afa grading and one grade will be the card or the backing card so that's the the piece of cardboard that the toy is mounted to and then one will be the bubble which is the clear plastic that covers the toy and then one is the actual figure itself so usually if you send in a item it costs a lot to do so you wouldn't send in anything that isn't rare or isn't in good condition but the item would probably be quite a good item and you'd usually get you know 80 out of 100 for the card and maybe 80 out of 100 for the for the the bubble and maybe 95 for the figure because it's brand new and hasn't got anything wrong with it but it's very hard to get you know an afa 95 or 100 which is almost unheard of so you have customers who here in australia who do that and actually send over to america and then well the worst i've got a story there the worst um the worst story i've ever heard about that a nightmare story is someone had their original star wars collection and it was a full carded um collection of about 105 figures and they decided to get the whole collection AFA graded because they had upgraded their collection for years and years and had a really nice collection. And they sent it all over and it all got graded fine. And then AFA sent it back and AFA put the value of it on the customs form, which was many, many tens of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. So uh, this was a while ago when it was, I think, 22.5% import tax. So they had to pay thousands and thousands of dollars to get their own collection back into the country. And they said to Customs, but this is my collection and I can prove it was my collection. And Customs said, that's all well and fine, but you didn't fill out the right forms. So you're paying to have your collection back. As Mark said before, we were sitting in front of a wall of Star Wars items and they're all you know, beautifully sealed behind their plastic. 
whenever you've bought figures, have you kept them behind there, or have you enjoyed t- t- tearing them open and actually you know, really, having them in your hand? It really depends. I'm an opener, so all the new um, character option stuff, I tend to open and display, and you can actually collect a lot more in the same area if you open everything and display it. There's a lot of people who who keep it um, carded, and that's fine as well. I, I, I enjoy opening stuff, but... That said, if I found something from the 60s that was still mint in the box, the value is in it's never been opened, so I probably wouldn't open something from that era. And we do have um, shop Facebook moments because of the different generations that collect now where kids come in and say, I really want that Ninja Turtle, and it's a vintage one that's still mint on the card from like the late 80s, and their parents buy it for them, and they rip it out of the card in front of us. Which doesn't mean anything to the the kids or their parents, and they can't understand. We're like, can we just take photos of you doing this? <laughs> and we put it online and have all the all the collectors going, oh my goodness, no, <laughs> that's another one, another another less carded one out there. People having conniption fits watching it on the internet. <laughs> yes. Is there much sixties and seventies stuff that that you've seen coming through your hands that is considered mints still in boxes? There isn't a lot anymore. Collecting's changed. You know, before Star Wars, toys weren't really looked at as something you collected as an investment. Mm. Um, You would get some of the old tin robots that were collectible and some of the old dolls that were more antique than collectible. But before Star Wars, no one really collected toys as an investment. So there were not a lot of stuff kept out there, mint and packet. So the only thing, the only time you would have things like that turn up is if you know, there was a shop find or a warehouse find. And I think in, in the 80s there was a warehouse find of um, Doctor Who Dalek um, money boxes. Uh, and so there's some of them turn up mint in the box, never opened. But there's very little from that era that mm. that is still mint in box, not opened. Wasn't there a story that they found some pallets of Target books? All the missing copies all, of Web all, of Fear? No, not those ones. <laughs> uh, the Wheel in Wheel Space. Wheel in Space. <laughs> Wheel in Space, don't say Web of Fear. Um, yeah, apparently in the UK they found uh, quite a number of pallets yeah, of Target someone, books. Someone had them in his garage, didn't yeah. they? And I think they eBayed them, and a consortium of fans have bought them and are now offering them to libraries, libraries which yeah. is That's really great nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting with the Target books because I, I had many thousands of Target books um, that I had for years and years and couldn't sell, and they were one of the few things I would take to the Doctor Who club and couldn't sell because most people had a full set of Target books. And when we open the shop here, we are primarily just toys, but I've brought the Target books in here and I've sold all of them, wow. every single one I had. And it's not to old collectors, it's all to kids who are like, oh, wow, Doctor Who books. And um, so there's a whole new generation discovering the old series from Target books. It's a shame, though, that they're, uh, they're not more widely available, isn't yeah. it, really? Well, they've, they've reprinted a couple, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, but, but uh, they haven't kept kept it going. Yeah. Just imagine the nightmare for people who like to collect every cover, though, if they reissued <laughs> all 150 Target books. Maybe it's a good thing they haven't, then. Good for you, Aaron, but bad for everyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> talk about uh the, the the first decade of this century where up until you know for the first two or three years doctor who was dead it wasn't basically coming back what was the merchant what was doctor who merchandise just to bring it back to doctor who what was doctor who merchandise like in the first part of the last decade 
I didn't collect a lot because it felt to me without the series to support it, I was collecting for the sake of collecting rather than collecting because I was enjoying it. So I did like some of the early um, Virgin books and some of the literature, which I thought was really well done. I never really got into the audios, which was I know a lot of people really love. Um, I never got into them. I always thought Doctor Who was more a visual medium. And, and, and there are some classic um, big finishes, but... There wasn't a lot of stuff around. It was mainly sustained by fans creating merchandise because they wanted the show to come back. So you'll find um, there was a lot of stuff through that era. Dapol, for example. There was a lot of people that collected Dapol merchandise. Um, and some of those old Dapol Daleks used to go for a, a fortune on eBay. And then when the new series came back, you, you found from that era there was a slump. Um, the classic toys from the 60s and 70s have never gone through a slump but the merchandise produced in the era where it was mainly sustained by fans for fans as soon as the series came back a lot of a lot of that sort of got dumped as people went on to the more official uh, stuff that's been released for the series and if you look at character options classic figures can compare to Dapol classic figures you can understand why yeah so they've become more of a curio that people collect that they haven't held their value okay so the series comes back and the older stuff except for the 60s and 70s 70s drops in value what can you say about the, the merchandise that's come along since the show, show came back in terms of quality variety collectability i'm i'm amazed um I never ever thought in my life I would walk into Toys R Us and see Doctor Who figures, mm. which 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 happened for a little while, and um, the merchandise is very very well accepted. Um, kids love it. It's more mainstream than it is sort of um, niche now. There's still a big market for genre fans and people who have been Doctor Who fans for a long time, but I find the new series merchandise from uh, Christopher Eccleston onwards. It's mainly kids and people who love the new show that collect it. And the classic series merchandise that's been released because of the new series coming back, so the um, character classic series, doesn't get as much interest from the kids, but it's sort of reactivated a lot of collectors who never thought they'd go and be able to find the crinoid in the in the shop kind of thing. And it, and it shows me you could probably release classic series merchandise forever because there's been a built-in market that's been waiting for it for so long they might complain about 10 different versions of the cyberman but they're going to buy them all <laughs> so so it's it's interesting from that point of view that i think the new series merchandise i think when russell t davies set it all up there was uh, they they made sure there was a quality control to what they were going to release and it wasn't it flooded the market but it didn't flood the market in a bad way where there was a lot of cheap and nasty mm -hmm. stuff and by doing that it sort of gives a value to the collector because they're getting a good item and hopefully it will hold its value um, down the track. And I do think it's it's going to go through the Star Wars syndrome where a lot of kids who loved the adventures as a kid will move away from science fiction as they go through school and, and you know, their 20s. And then when they're older again and, you know, they've got their own kids, they'll try and introduce them to what they loved as a kid and you'll have a whole generation that are collecting the character options and looking for different variants of Rose and mm. things like that. I've heard that the uh, from the new series merchandise that the Sonic Screwdriver is a massive selling item. A, is that true? And B, how massive is if it is true? Over Christmas, there were fights over getting the last Matt Smith Sonic Screwdriver <laughs> in the shop because we had one on lay-by out the back. 
and they hadn't come in to pick it up. People were coming in every day asking, has that person come in? Yes, the sonic screwdriver is one of those items I never thought would be so desired and and, and I guess for kids in role play, um, my son takes it to school and it amazes me there's other kids at his school who bring the sonic screwdriver to school and it isn't me being a Doctor Who fan buying him a sonic screwdriver. It's it's a mainstream thing. It's it's really it's really interesting because you look at how um, John Nathan Turner run the show in the 80s, how it was all about publicity and merchandising and he got something so wrong like kids could play with a sonic screwdriver and he destroyed it almost straight away because it didn't suit the stories that he wanted whereas they brought it back and it is one of the most you know iconic things about the new series kids love the matt smith one the best because it jumps up and has claws so okay so it's more it's more interactive yes exactly. yeah i'm just going to ask did you see a, a burst in sales once matt smith came along because he was flourishing at every opportunity basically as opposed to say david tennant when uh, david tennant regenerated there was actually a slump in 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 sales um it wasn't until i guess a couple of um probably half the series in that kids warmed to him because I guess Christopher Eccleston hadn't been around long enough for kids to get really attached. Mm. But David Tennant had been there young, long enough that all the kids thought they were his doctor and they weren't going to enjoy this new guy kind of thing. So the we had the David Tennant merchandise in the shop and the Matt Smith, and probably for a year the David Tennant stuff still outsold Matt Smith and then gradually he he caught up. And now... He would. I, I don't know if he would be more popular, but he would be on par with David Tennant. Mm. Do you, with the David Tennant merchandise, for instance, did you and, and the Matt Smith merchandise were the purchases as a demographic were they different, or is it overall just the same? Um, they would probably be. It's probably got more and more towards kids buying stuff, and I don't think that's to do with either David Tennant or Matt Smith's um, performance. I think it's more to do with Doctor Who becoming more and more uh, mainstream and more kids accepting it and there being more role play at school. I think the one thing that's probably affected um, Matt Smith is the series hasn't been as consistent for him. And um, it's, it's sad to see we have lots of kids come in and they've seen the new series and they go, we want this figure, when's this figure coming in? And you have to explain that figure isn't ever going to be made. And it's because... I think the people, it's not even the merchandisers, they probably want to produce it, it's just there isn't a lot enough mainstream stores that will support it without the show being on regularly every year. Uh, I see stuff at, at Toy Fair, you know, that would be great, but it's not been produced just because no one picked it up, because you go to BBC um, Worldwide and you can look at their... Um, the next couple of years of what they're rolling out for Top Gear and Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Who is a big mystery because they don't know what's coming and not a lot of um, not a lot of shops will you know commit to millions and millions of dollars of merchandise if they don't know if the show's even going to be on. Mm. I think a prime example would be the the fiftieth anniversary. That year, there should have been loads of Doctor Who merchandise. That was the one year where they had the fiftieth anniversary. It would be in everyone's everyone's minds it's 50 years old the classic series the new series there was hardly anything released toy what toy wise why do you think that was because there wasn't enough episodes on during the year so they couldn't say there's 13 episodes so mm. you wouldn't get toys or us saying okay we know it's going to be on from october to 
the end of the year, so we're going to order this many units for this amount of time. Mm. So you, you got the limited release of the, the Dalek two-packs, and they were probably one of our best sellers just because there wasn't a lot mm. around at the at the time. Have mainstream retailers stopped selling Doctor Who toys as a result of that now? Well, it's interesting. I think in Australia we haven't so much as um, in the UK, and mm. it's in the UK where they really need the market support for the items to sell. You'll see with the stuff that comes out now, it's a different marketing model. They don't rely on you know, Woolworths or Toys R Us taking so many units, it's usually, you know, someone like Forbidden Planet will order a um, an exclusive and they'll ask for so many units and it's a low run and they know they're going to sell out everything they produce. I mean, the way merchandising has happened, it's, it's unfortunate they've, a couple of times, they've probably not through any fault of their own. It's just been bad luck the way toys have been released in different waves and the waves that have been picked up by the retailers haven't been the waves that have sold yeah because you've seen they see the previous wave sells overseas and i think well that sells really well we'll start with the second wave in australia so the first lot of stuff in toys r us should have been the david tennant doll and the cyberman hmm. but they skipped that wave because they wanted to see how it sold so we got martha and the jadoon which isn't going to have as much appeal no. Uh, to, to anyone but collectors but in Australia I think because we have Doctor Who on you know it's on all the time and we had that classic series on all when time, everyone was yeah. gr growing up there's a lot more people who now the toys are available support the market locally I know Icon who's our local distributor um, they can order enough for Australia to trigger, to pr trigger a production run of stuff so sometimes you see stuff that's in Australia that a lot of eBayers are buying back in the UK because we got more here than they, they did yeah. overseas. So how many items constitutes a production run? I think the minimum production run is 10,000 units. Just for one market? Yeah. Based on what you said before, Aaron, you'd suspect that, uh, say, BBC Worldwide would love for the production team to be able to pump episodes out half the year? Yes. They The, the, the ideal model for BBC Worldwide, and it was when we were getting the mer most merchandise, was when there was Doctor Who, the primary show, Torchwood, The Sarah Jane Adventures, Totally Doctor Who, and Doctor Who Confidential, because there was like five hours of new Doctor Who programming on every week, and when they can say to retailers, we've got that much, this is with our adverts, we've got that much programming on every week, well the retailers are going to be more likely to take a line and say we'll order so many units than BBC Worldwide saying, we're going to probably have six episodes this year. We might have 12 or we might have 13, but we don't know when they're actually going to be on. So would you suspect, without, I suppose, you know, having a line into BBC Worldwide, that there would be pressure on the production team to... I think there'd be incredible pressure on the production team to maximise the amount of material they're producing and, and putting out there, yeah. Would you love to have more material coming out so that you could have more in your store? Uh, I would love for there to be more Doctor Who as long as the production team were able to, to sustain the level of quality that, um, that we expect from them. Do you want to just talk about what rare Doctor Who items are, are you in your store and what 
constitutes a rare Doctor Who item? We don't have a lot of rare Doctor Who items at the, in the store because I find there's not really a market for the 60s stuff in Australia, mm. um, apart from me and a couple of other collectors. And we've been collecting for so long, we have a lot of the stuff that's around or we would get it from, e- from eBay. To keep a reasonable price for items in the store, we try and um, compete with what prices are on eBay so people can come into the store and buy it and know that they're not going to log on to eBay and get it for half the price. Mm. Um, and to do that, you have to be able to source it for a reasonable price. And there isn't, a, there isn't a second-hand market in Australia for old Doctor Who merchandise. So you'll find annuals and you'll find old editions of the books, but you don't find anything really cheap that you would call a classic collectible. That said, um, we do get some of the exclusive figures in that don't hit locally. So they would be rare figures for the more modern collector. So we imported things that the local distributor didn't get. So the Master and the TARDIS... Um, from the time monster and the ace figure that didn't come out so so some of those things I'll import just because I'm a, I'm a fan and want to have them in the shop mm. how many would you import of those depends on which ones they are probably about eight eight, okay. eight figures and yeah. they, they sell pretty quickly they would go pretty fast yeah okay do you want to talk about uh, prototypes of toys that actually never went into physical production from the 60s onwards? Do you know any examples off the top of your head? Yeah, I think one of the, the researchers, um, Richard Bignall, finds some documents from BBC Enterprises back then from some of the amazing toys that didn't happen. Okay. And I, I think we could have been looking at Chumleys <laughs> from yeah. Galaxy 4, but there wasn't enough market support. So. Oh, funny about that. And, and then, um, if you skip forward to the 70s, um, I don't think the pictures have ever showed up, but there have been retailers from the 70s who do remember that they were peddling another wave of um, Denny Fisher figures. There was going to be The Master and, I think, Stigron. Maybe Sarah Jane and Harry were in the works and they didn't happen. Which version of The Master, the Delgado or the Peter Pratt version? Well, if it was um, Denny better. Fisher, it would have probably looked like Ernest Borgnine. Yeah, probably. We <laughs> 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 used the mold from the other New Avengers line. It didn't happen. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But um, no, so they, they'd be interesting to turn up. I'd love love to see them. And I think we've got, uh, was it uh, Biff Bam Pow have done a series that would have probably been very similar to what Denny Fisher would have con- continued with. Hmm. And then character, a lot of um, prototypes have, have turned up. I was looking at eBay earlier today and there was a prototype of um, Christopher Eccleston's hologram project, projection doctor on eBay for about £200, which was is just a nice way of taking the old mould and remoulding it in clear plastic and having a variant for everyone to, <laughs> to collect. It's like having the Planet of the Daleks toy set, isn't it, with a spirit on, the invisible spirit on exactly. included, but it's just basically nothing. The thing with prototypes, it's very expensive for a toy company to get to the point where they produce a physical prototype, so it's very rare for them to get to that stage mm. without it going into production. So... I know there's been photos leaked of um, what character had planned, and who knows if we'll ever ever see them. There was a really nice Yeti figure that um, was meant to come out for the classic line, but I would have thought if Web of Fear came out on DVD, if it didn't come out around that time, it's yeah, never gonna. They, they've lost their. <laughs> they've lost the they've window, lost the window haven't they? Yeah. 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 So, but there there are some nice prototypes that turn up from time to time. So basically, the only way to sort of source these is eBay. And they're mainly character options. Yes, it's it's hard to find prototypes. Okay. 
uh, there, there are some Denny Fisher prototypes around as well and they turn up on eBay. Just to wrap things up here uh, at Lobos Collectibles, Aaron, if you just want to tell our listeners uh, how they may get in contact with you in the shop. Well, we are one of Melbourne's biggest collectible shops for vintage collectibles. We're 503 High Street in Northcote and anyone who comes in and wants to have a chat about Doctor Who, uh, I'm quite happy to, to do that and I'm here every day except for Tuesdays when we're not open and Sundays. If you collect Doctor Who merchandise, it's definitely worth coming and checking us out. We've got a selection of classic and and new stuff and a lot of things that aren't available just in the regular stores. We've also got a big range of all science fiction, comic collectible type action figures. Uh, We've got a huge range of Star Wars and Iron Man, Marvel, Batman. And then we've got a lot of vintage stuff too. So if you're into He-Man or G.I. Joe, or some of the rarer vintage stuff like Power Lords, for those people who know that I'm talking about. Uh, a lot of horror figures and a lot of um, comic book uh, related figures too. Do you have an online presence? Uh, we have a Facebook page uh, where you can check out the shop. And uh, Aaron has kindly uh, offered a prize uh, to, to one, of our, uh, one of our listeners. Aaron, what's that prize? Um, well, as an extra incentive for some of our local listeners to come in and check the shop out, I'm offering a Lobos $50 gift voucher that can be spent in, on anything in the store, not just Doctor Who merchandise. But I do have a tricky question that you'll have to answer to win that. I don't know how, um, how you guys work out who gets... We'll basically the first response to the tricky question that we receive in our email box. We will uh, based on Melbourne time, Eastern Standard Melbourne, Time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and based on Melbourne Standard Time. Yeah. Well, well, Doctor Who must be one of those few shows that could actually generate merchandise before the show was even conceived. Um, it would be people could collect police boxes, the dinky toy ones that goes back 20, 30 years before the show was shown. But my question is, what was the very first officially licensed piece of Doctor Who merchandise? There you go. Answers on the postcard, please. You can send your answers uh, via our Twitter feed or our Facebook feed or uh, send us an email, which uh, the details, of course, are at the end of the uh, podcast. So on behalf of Mark and myself, Aaron, it's been a real pleasure coming to your store. It's an absolute Aladdin's cave of collectibles. It's one of the most remarkable things I've ever actually seen in terms of fandom uh there really is something here for everyone and that i know that's marketing spiel but it is a wonderful place to come down bring your kids uh if you're ever in because uh it's just it's just a really wonderful thing just to walk around and, and look at the shelves uh do yourselves a favor and get down here so aaron thank you so much for Thanks very uh, much, being on the podcast thank you for having me Thanks to Aaron for agreeing to be interviewed by Mark and myself. Um, We certainly enjoyed the experience and hope our listeners uh, do too. Uh, Just to touch on uh, Aaron's uh, very generous offer of the prize, the $50 voucher for Lobos Collectibles. Um, If you could get your emails into us by the 14th of July, last mail, 14th of July, first person basically to to get back in touch with us, who will be the winner of that prize. Obviously, uh, if you're living in Melbourne, it will make it much easier for yourself to get on down there and make use of the voucher. But obviously, for those of our listeners who are overseas, uh, I'm sure we can make arrangements to have that voucher over there, or you can obviously contact Aaron uh, via the internet and make use of the voucher. So the first one in is the winner. Shall we finish up with a letter, Rob? Mark, we should finish up with a letter. Hit it, Kef. You've got mail. Thanks, Kef, for that contribution. <laughs> Hello, Kef. Hello, the hammer. So, 
So we've just got time to read one email uh, from our regular correspondent, uh, Captain Hawkins. Captain Hawkins writes, Hi gents, just a note to follow up the letter from Angela, read out during the Target Books episode, who wrote in looking for some suggestions for some classic Who stories to show her niece. My son has just turned seven. He's seen some of the Eccleston, Tennant, Matt Smith stories. He's also seen me with the classic series DVDs and caught odd bits of the old series here and there and wanted to see some of the other Doctors. While I'd love to watch the Seeds of Doom or Caves of Androzani with him, that's probably not realistic at the moment, so we went for more innocuous stories. We started with the Five Doctors and then watched The Time Warrior. He's seen about half of the Daleks. He lost interest when the story shifted to the Thals, so we didn't watch the last couple of episodes. We've also watched The Three Doctors, some of the Dominators. He thinks Troughton is hilarious. Robot, Horns of Nymon, and Remembrance of the Daleks amongst others. I did think of the chase, but that would have meant I'd have to sit through it as well. Most of those have fairly low body counts and not a lot of nastiness, so it might be suitable to introduce your niece to the series. Anyway, really enjoying the podcast, guys. Keep up the good work. Some good choices there. Well, you can't get any any more innocuous than, I suppose, the five doctors, unless you think that uh, vomiting, uh, Soberman vomiting milk is less than innocuous. But yeah, no, there is some good choices there. But you know what? Kids these days do need toughening up. And I think a few episodes of The Seeds of Doom would toughen up uh, even the most fragile of spirits. Although if you do want to put your child to sleep, I would recommend The Web Planet. It's the uh, video version of Finergan. <laughs> and uh, for any uh, person whose child will be going into the corporate world, uh, hints and tips from uh, how to do so in the case of Androzani are a must. <laughs> So, I mean, if you want to climb to the top of the ladder, you've got to push someone down the lift shaft, clearly. Exactly. And also turn around in your corporate chair and talk to somebody who's actually not there, which I do a lot. (laughs) That's so true. The amount of people who do that at work is just bizarre. But anyway. So thanks, everyone, for downloading and listening to our episode today. We hope you've enjoyed it. Now... Before we go, we'd like to issue an appeal on behalf of anyone who's interested in the ongoing saga that is the Omnibollocks. The internet can sometimes be a cruel and vicious place, Mark. And over the last couple of weeks, there has been an escalation of verbal grenades launched between two esteemed and lauded missing episode hunters. It pains, nay, upsets us both to see the glimmer twins of the Doctor Who missing episodes world in conflict in the same way as Noel and Liam Gallagher were just before a festival in 2009. So to Phil and Wigan and Ian in West London, we offer you this long distance love song and dedication. I don't want to talk If it makes you feel sad And I understand You've come to shake my hand I apologize If it makes you feel bad Seeing me so tense No self-confidence But you see The winner takes
You've been listening to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the Doctor Who podcast hosted by Robert Mark. You can contact us on our Twitter account at 42 to Doomsday. You can email us at our Gmail account, 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. Facebook us at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. Until we meet again, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you soon. Missing episodes. What the? <laughs> <laughs>